Africa, rise and shine. Africa, zorza. Africa, amuka na unai. Good morning and a very warm welcome to Africa Rise and Shine. This is Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance, coming to you live from Johannesburg in South Africa. We are on the frequency 7230 kHz on the 41 meter band to Southern Africa and on 15255 kHz on the 19 meter band to Far West Africa, as well as DSTV's audio bouquet channel 902. I'm Lulu Gabu, in studio with Anne Musa, Tabisoluhoko, and Msibudi Makura. In our top stories on Africa Rise and Shine at the Sawa, UN Security Council lifts arms embargo on Ivory Coast, concerns over the worsening humanitarian situation in Syria, and Papa Wemba's body arrives home in the DRC. In economics news, high food prices put Zambian families under pressure, and in sports news, Zambian athletes continue preparations for Rio Olympics. The first up the news with Anne Musa. A very good morning to you. I'm Anne Musa. The U.S. has rejected accusations by Russia that anti-Islamic state coalition planes were responsible for the bombing of a hospital in the Syrian city of Aleppo, which killed more than 20 patients and doctors. A total of more than 50 people have been killed in the latest airstrikes in Aleppo. The White House has condemned the wave of airstrikes, saying it's appalled by the strike on the Doctors Without Borders Run Hospital. The U.S. says indications are that Syrian government planes were responsible. Russia says it has not conducted bombing raids in the city in recent days. Equatorial Guinea's President Tuadora Obiang Ngema has won re-election, securing 93% of votes cast in an April 24 poll to extend his 37-year rule over the Central African oil producer. A government statement says his closest challenger, Avelino Mukache Benga, won just 1.5% of the vote. Turnout was 93%. Liberian soccer legend George Weah has officially declared his intention to contest the country's presidential election. He made the announcement to a cheering all-blue crowd in the capital, Monrovia. Despite losing out on the 2005 election, Weah is convinced he stands a better chance next year when President Ellen Johnson's leave's final term in office comes to an end. He says he would make fixing the education system building new clinics and hospitals, reviving agriculture and combating youth unemployment, his top priorities. The United Nations Human Rights Chief Ziad Rahad Al-Hussein has condemned an increasing number of attacks against high-level officials in Burundi. The reaction from Al-Hussein follows Monday's assassination of Brigadier General Athanisa Karuruza and his wife and an attempt on the life of Government Minister Martin Niviyabande a day earlier. Violence continues to grip the country following President Pien Kurunzizo's decision to stand for a controversial third term in office. Alusain spokesperson Ravina Shamdasani elaborates.
The High Commissioner condemns the increasing number of attacks against high-level officials in Burundi. These must be properly investigated. The killers must be arrested and brought before the law. The great majority of these attacks were carried out by unidentified armed men. And finally, U.S. Federal Bureau of Investigations agents have arrested the brother of a man who carried out the December mass shooting in San Bernardino, as well as two women on charges of conspiracy. The FBI says the charges against Siyad Rahil Farouk, his brother Siyad Razwan Farouk, and sister-in-law Tashfin Malik killed 14 people at a holiday party last year follow an immigration-related investigation that began with the probe into the massacre. Farouk and Malik, who were radicalized Muslims, died in a shootout with police hours after they killed the 14 people in the Californian city. That's the news headlines at 8.30 Central African time. Thank you, Anne. It's 8.05 Central African time, and you're listening to Africa Rise and Shine. Coming to you live from Johannesburg on this Thursday, April the 29th, the 120th day of 2016, with 246 days left in the year. A senior UN official has warned that the human toll and suffering in Syria is sickening and obscene in a senseless fight where there is nothing much to gain. In a latest incident, 20 people were killed, including two doctors, when two rockets hit a hospital in Aleppo City, a grave violation of international humanitarian law. Meanwhile, the increasing level of violence in the country over the last two weeks could lead to a potential collapse of a recently negotiated truce. Jocelyn Sambira has more. The human toll and suffering is sickening and obscene in this senseless fight where there is nothing much left to gain. The UN Emergency Relief Coordinator began his briefing on Syria to the Security Council via video link from Vienna on Thursday with these strong words. Stephen O'Brien condemned the latest attacks on two hospitals in Syria's northern city of Aleppo following an increase in fighting in the area. Airstrikes in eastern Aleppo city struck Al-Quds Hospital, killing at least 20 people, including two doctors. Another hospital in western Aleppo has also reportedly been hit. It is horrific that the presence of a hospital or health facility is now perceived by neighbours to be a threat to their safety. Media reports say one of the doctors killed was the last pediatrician in Aleppo. The UN humanitarian chief also described the inhumane practice of removing medicines and medical supplies on aid convoys and urged the council to press the Syrian government to allow the delivery of medical supplies. O'Brien deplored the blocking of safe and unimpeded access to people in dire humanitarian need by parties to the conflict, citing towns like Douma and Daria where populations were starving and enduring entire days without food, eating grass and wild vegetation. If the international community fails to maintain political momentum with a sustained cessation of hostilities and with full humanitarian access, the situation can and will only spiral further out of control. The international community simply must not let the chance we have today slip away. 
Earlier in a briefing to the press in Geneva, the special envoy for Syria, Stefan de Mistura, warned that the peace talks had been overshadowed by the deterioration of the cessation of hostilities. He called for a new round of talks in May. We have at least one or two more rounds before July, which is our timetable which we have been setting in order to be able to take stock of where we are, and to announce a new target date during the course of May. The intra-Syrian peace talk started in January, and a cessation of hostilities was agreed to on 27th of February. Jocelyn Sambira, United Nations. The United Nations Security Council has lifted a 12-year sanctions regime on Cote d'Ivoire and renewed for one more cycle the UN mission to the country. The world's top cocoa producer has been lauded for its political and economic progress since the political uncertainty that began in 2002, culminating in an electoral crisis in 2010 that later saw the arrest of former President Laurent Gbagbo, who now faces trial at the International Criminal Court in The Hague. The mission, UNOSI, of almost 7,000 troops and police will be completely withdrawn by June of next year. Sharon Brice-Peace has more. There were dramatic visuals aired around the world of former President Laurent Gbagbo after his arrest in Abidjan in 2011. That followed a four-month elections dispute where the international community backed current President Alassane Ouattara. The agenda is adopted. In New York, a unanimous decision to lift all sanctions and arms embargo and begin the process of the UN's military withdrawal. France is the penholder on this country. Listen to its ambassador, François Delattre. In a world where crises unfortunately multiply instead of becoming fewer, Côte d'Ivoire's example proves that security endeavors can attain their ends when assisting a country in extricating itself from crisis. UNOSI and the sanctions regime clearly have contributed to re-establishing peace and security in Côte d'Ivoire. And here I would like to pay particular tribute to troop and police contributing countries. The UN's arms embargo was established in 2004 after an initial civil war in 2002 would leave the country politically unstable for much of the last decade. Ambassador Michelle Sison is the Deputy Permanent Representative of the United States. In Cote d'Ivoire, sanctions worked because of the effective collaboration of international partners and mechanisms, including the Sanctions Committee and Expert Group, UNOSI, and significantly the Ivoirian government. Today's decision to terminate the sanctions on Cote d'Ivoire is a testament to what can be achieved when sanctions are targeted, deployed with purpose, and grounded within a clear strategy for promoting international peace and security. Cote d'Ivoire's government applauded the Council's decision through Ambassador Claude Bouha-Camon. My delegation welcomes the adoption of both of these resolutions and believes, indeed hopes, that they testify to the myriad efforts of the government of Cote d'Ivoire undertaken since the end of the crisis in my country of 2011. But we believe that they also point to the effectiveness of the unwavering support of the United Nations and the international community as a whole. Japan's ambassador and the current deputy permanent representative to the United Nations, Yoshifumi Okamura, was head of his country's mission to Abidjan in 2011 when his residence was attacked, here with English translation. 
the French army and UNICE saved my life and the lives of my colleagues. And I would like to take this opportunity to renew my thanks to the courageous operation of France at that time and the courageous actions of UNICE. And it is for that reason that I am very moved to be here today on this occasion. In the current climate of global insecurity and the difficulties faced by UN missions around the world, this is not only a positive story for the United Nations, but also for Africa at large. Officials here believe the success of UNOKI is a model of what is possible when the multilateral system comes together under the UN flag. I'm Sherman Bricepies in New York. Human rights issues, peace and security and giving the Pan-African Parliament legislative powers are some of the issues set to dominate discussions at the upcoming session of parliamentarians taking place in Johannesburg next week. This was announced by the President of the Pan-African Parliament, Roger Ngodo Deng. He was speaking after meeting with South African-based ambassadors at the parliamentary headquarters in Midran, north of Johannesburg. The Ambassadors Forum sought to discuss the set agenda for the second ordinary session of the fourth parliament of the Pan-African Parliament taking place from the 3rd until the 13th of May. President Roger Ngodo Dang elaborates. The issue, we are going to deal to many, many issues. The first one is the human right, especially for the woman. We are going to discuss to discord, but we have uh, the AU budget. We are going to discuss about the AU budget and some another issue, the problem of security. We are going to that. But the, the real problem for me is to give the full legislative power to people. And this, we need you, like member of the press, to lobby. We need the civil society. We need everybody to bring his support. Because if you look the difference of the Pan-African Parliament and the uh, European Parliament is what is the difference? The difference is that Pan-African Parliament is very, very big Parliament in terms of population. But AU is very big in terms of finance and in terms of the decision. But here we have, we have uh, maybe 1 billion, 1.2. And if you go to AU, is 500 million people but the parliament is very strong there so we need it's not only for us it's for the interests of africa we have many subjects we can deal many many you have the climate change you have the terrorism you have the the school so this problem is the common problem in the whole continent how we cannot be we can build one strategy to deal for all these issues but now uh, it's very difficult for us because we are still making the recommendation only. If tomorrow we get a full legislative, I think we can move, try to unite, uh, unite to, to bring all the continent to united. So what is why we are trying to do? If you could just tell us, what was the purpose of this ambassador's forum? The meeting for today, you know, ambassador is uh, representing the state member. So we are always, when we meet them, we can bring the, some uh, experience to our work. We can extend some issue, and then we build one strategy. And is also the man we can send the information to the country. 
So we meet uh, the ambassador this morning to tell them that the problem of ratification is a big challenge. Most of the country of AU don't want to ratify. So this information will be transferred to the city capital for each ambassador to know that Pan-Africans have a problem of ratification. And then we discuss about the president uh, is uh, attending for the, the session. It's very important because uh, Pan-African parliament is uh, the parliament of the all the country in uh, Africa. So if you have a problem here, you have to inform uh, the ambassador here in South Africa who can, in particular, extend, extend the information to the city capital. So it's very important to meet before the session the ambassador who is here in uh, South Africa. That was the president of the Pan-African Parliament, Roger Ngodo Deng, and he was speaking in Midrand, Johannesburg. Hello, listeners. Join Channel Africa in its 50th anniversary celebrations. Channel Africa is turning 50 in May this year. Join us as we move through memories of this station since 1966. <laughs> Hello, uh, hi, I'm Salif Keita. You're listening to Channel Africa, the voice of African Renaissance. Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Zorka. Africa, Amuka na Unai. It's 8.17 Central African time and you're listening to Africa Rise and Shine. We're coming to you live from Johannesburg in South Africa. Now the UN agencies warned this week that an acute funding shortfall is hampering their work in assisting thousands of South Sudanese refugees who have fled to neighboring Sudan. South Sudan... South Sudanese have been fleeing their newly formed nation after it descended into conflict in 2013, shortly after gaining independence. More than 50,000 people have fled into Sudan since January to escape the violence and food shortages across the border. For more on this issue, we are now joined on the line by Geert Capellara, representative of the UN child agency UNICEF. Good morning, Geert, and welcome to Africa Rise and Shine. Good morning. Now, first things first, Sudan overwhelmed by South Sudanese refugees coming into their country. Can you elaborate more on the situation? Well, indeed, um, Sudan uh, is hosting an important number of uh, South Sudanese uh, refugees. Uh, The total number of uh, South Sudanese currently residing in in Sudan is, is estimated um, over 300,000. Uh, and of course, some of these uh, South Sudanese um, people are people 
who uh, are not necessarily refugees but who have been there prior to the separation in 2011. But an important number, over 150,000, uh, are estimated to refugees have been fleeing the recent conflict. Um, and we have seen that number only increasing um, uh, very recently. We have seen a surge of um, refugees coming in, uh, fleeing conflict, but also fleeing the lack of food uh, in northern parts of South Sudan. Um, and what is of major concern is that the big majority, um, over 70% of people fleeing South Sudan are children. Now, here let's speak about the issue of aid agencies um, increasingly becoming concerned about the lack of funding um, for their response, response operations. How big is the funding gap for UNICEF? And should the world get worried? The funding gap is, is huge. Um, UNICEF, uh, for its operations in Sudan, uh, requires a funding in 2016 of over $175 million. We are end of April, and UNICEF has to date received not more than 13% of what is needed. And that starts hampering dramatically our, our operations uh, our operations to provide timely humanitarian and development assistance to the many children in need in the country, uh, and particularly uh, the assistance we uh, are providing to the South Sudanese um, refugee children. Um, we are, we are uh, not on any longer able to provide the much needed uh, nutrition intervention, uh, education, for drinking water, for example, we are struggling to provide the, the necessary prote- uh, protection the uh, accompanied accompany children, for unaccompanied children or separated children. The situation is really, really very dire for us. Um, we need to prioritize amongst uh, so many priorities, and, and unfortunately that prevents us from doing what we should be doing, that is helping each and every vulnerable child in Sudan. Now, let's speak about the issue of uh, the funding. Why is funding not flowing through as it should with regards to um, South Sudan? Uh, Is it an issue of money being spread too thin because there's issues in in, in Europe with uh, migrants. Um, There's issues apart from uh, Europe, the African continent, uh, everywhere else in the world, there's issues. Why are countries not giving um, the money to UNICEF and other aid agencies to assist people who or refugees who really are in bad situations? Well, I, I think there are many reasons explaining that, uh, and none of the reasons are good reasons. Uh, let me be clear about that. But one reason is, of course, that the world as a whole is struggling today with many, many more uh, humanitarian crises. Um, if I just look at the Middle East today, um, we have uh, active conflict not only in Sudan or South Sudan. We have that active conflict going on 
in Iraq, we have that in Syria, we have it in Yemen, we have Libya. Um, so you see an, a, a, an important number of humanitarian crises that need the world's attention, that need the world's uh, support. And Sudan is unfortunately only one of the, one of them. The second reason is, of course, that um, the world has been uh, supporting the crisis in Sudan for many years, and um, there may be um, a concern amongst those generous donors that, um, with all the support given, that the situation in Sudan has not necessarily as much improved as it should. So there may be also a kind of donor fatigue of uh, why would we continue giving money? For us, the answer to that is very simple. The children do need us, do need that global solidarity um, in Sudan uh, as well. Um, there is also a, a concern amongst uh, donors that um, it is felt that the government of Sudan is not necessarily always as cooperative uh, in delivering humanitarian assistance. Uh, the government of Sudan is being seen as not giving access to deliver humanitarian uh, assistance. A, a perception in any capitals around uh, around the world that we need to help nuancing. Uh, an organization like UNICEF today is able to access 95% of the children in need in Sudan. Uh, so it is not that UNICEF is, uh, is vaping idle uh, until the very moment we get the opportunity to assist children. No, every day we are able to access 95%. There are a few pockets of, um, uh, of places in Sudan that indeed access because of active conflict uh, um, has places that we haven't been able to assist the children, but these are really exceptional. So there are a number of reasons out there um, that that explain that the countries are not as generous as they should be for the children in Sudan. Uh, we, we have a, a ray of hope, though, um, because we see because of... Um, um, for example, the migration crisis in Europe, uh, we see the European institutions, we see a number of European countries uh, re-engaging, reconnecting with Sudan and offering um, over the last several weeks a new, a renewed uh, support uh, to Sudan because they see Sudan as a critical player to help stem the migration uh, from the south into Europe. And of course, this is very, very much thank you, welcome additional support. Whether we need also to plead with the European countries, with the European institutions, that this money is, is being well spent and not solely looking into the migration issue, but rather looking on how this investment can help making Sudan a better place for everyone and therefore for nobody finding similar reason to move up uh, into Europe. Now, Khed, finally, the World Humanitarian Summit in Turkey is looming. What are you hoping to see come out of this first-of-a-kind meeting? Well, we very much hope that a country like Sudan and particularly the situation of children in Sudan will be looked at 
as a situation that we need to learn from. Um, we need to learn from how we can do things differently. Um, the, a country like Sudan, with the assistance that has been provided, um, is a, a, a good situation where we learn that with all this generous assistance, we are able to make progress uh, despite conflict, despite under under development, uh, the government and the international institutions have been able to get more children into school, though being modest. Um, We have been able over the last 10 years, despite all what is happening, to reduce the child mortality, although that decrease is a modest one. So what we need to learn from a country like Saddam is what does it take in order for us to get a bigger return for children um, uh, with the investment we are making, how can we guarantee that the investment leads to many, many more children going to school, many, many more children being protected or having access to drinking water? Sudan is an incredibly interesting country with lessons from that would benefit for would benefit the children in Sudan, but would benefit the children, children across the globe if we take the lesson serious and act them differently. Geert, thank you so much for joining us. We have to leave it there for now. That was Geert Kapelaira, representative of the UN Child Agency, UNICEF, and he was on the line from Brussels in Belgium. This is Lira, South African Afro soul singer and songwriter. You're listening to Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance, celebrating 20 years of South African freedom and democracy. Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. Let's go back in time to today in... 1961, Nelson Mandela, leader of the Transvaal branch of the African National Congress, was acquitted of treason charges after a four-year-long trial. That was today in history in the year 1961. It's 8.30 and the headlines up next with Anne Musa. A very good morning to you. In the headlines, the United Nations Security Council has lifted a 12-year sanctions regime in Côte d'Ivoire. Equatorial Guinea's President Teodoro Obiang Ngema has won re-election, securing 93% of votes cast in an April 24 poll to extend his 37-year rule. And the U.S. military has rejected accusations by Russia that anti-Islamic state coalition planes are responsible for the bombing of a hospital in the Syrian city of Aleppo. Those are the stories making headlines. Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Zorra. Africa, Amuka, Na Una. Thank you, Anne. Hundreds of ordinary South Africans took to the streets on Wednesday to vent their 
discontent over President Jacob Zuma's leadership. And across the border, Zimbabweans are tackling their own feelings of disenfranchisement, but in a different way. A pastor's social media rant posted soon after the recent 36th independent celebrations have sparked a massive virtual movement in which Zimbabweans using social media are taking back the political space. Shingai Nyoka reports from Harare. It started as a personal rant from a pastor struggling to make ends meet. Ivan Mawarire had posted videos before, inspiring couples to make their marriages work. But one evening, struggling to raise school fees for his children, he felt that he had to vent. And I looked at this small flag that I have that sits on my desk. And I started asking the question, why is it that everything I have tried to do as a person in this country has not worked out? And one of the things that came to my mind was, I feel like my own country has stood in the way of my dreams. With his cell phone propped up on a desk and Zimbabwe's national flag draped around his shoulders, he recorded this video. Anzi the yellow, Anzi the yellow is for all the minerals, goride, diamonds, platinum, chrome. I don't know how much of it is left and I don't know who they sold it to and how much they got for it. They, they tell me that the black, the black is for, it's for the majority, people like me. And yet for some reason I don't feel like I am a part of it. Within hours, the post hashtagged this flag had attracted over 10,000 views and within days, over 100,000. Zimbabweans have responded by posting photos of themselves draped in the national flag. They say they feel patriotic again. Social media became a platform where we just share humor and rightfully so because we needed something to, you know, massage the pain away. So we laugh about some of the things we're going through. But it's now playing a key role because we are obviously now more connected than we've ever been before. International rights groups say civil liberties in Zimbabwe are routinely violated. But Mawarire says his next move is to encourage Zimbabweans to move beyond social media. I'm not, I'm not inciting violence. I'm not asking for the throwdown of our government. I want to encourage from the 1st of May to the 7th of May. We want to get as many Zimbabweans in this country to carry with them their national flag. Let's make a statement that the citizens are alive and that they want their country back. At its independence from colonialism in 1980, Zimbabwe was thought to hold the greatest hope for Africa. The continent's former breadbasket has suffered a massive economic decline that has left 80% of the adult population without jobs. This flag, it is my country. My Zimbabwe, we go through so much, we, we, we don't look like much even now, but there is promise in it. I will fight for it, I will live for it, and I will stand for it. Emboldened by social media, a new generation hopes to regain their political voice and raise high the national flag of Zimbabwe. I'm Shinganyoka in Harare. At least 78 Zimbabweans have died of malaria this year alone. Half of the Zimbabwean population is at risk of contracting malaria each year, whilst transmission is generally seasonal, starting from around November to the end of May. In Zimbabwe, malaria accounts for about 30 to 50 percent of outpatient attendances in the moderate to high transmission districts, especially during the peak transmission period. During a media field visit to Kariba, one of the worst areas affected by El Nino recently, medical experts expressed concern. Simon Muchema reports from Harare. 
At a time when countries in the region, such as Angola, are said to be battling with malaria, health officials in Zimbabwe have expressed concern malaria cases are on the increase along the Zambezi escarpment. During a field visit to the resort town of Kariba, Kedis of UNICEF recently, medical experts revealed the district is battling with malaria. At Gache Gache Clinic on the Lake Kariba shores, Kadzirai Mateme said cases of malaria could be increasing, burdening the medical center already battling with effects of El Nino. Although the clinic attends to thousands of villagers, electricity supply was recently cut off by heavy storms. The cold supply chain is non-existent at the clinic exposing villagers to possible drug-resistant ailments. Mateme explained. Yeah, taking big from three weeks ago. Yeah, the numbers were hiking. Such that per week we used to record one or two positive cases of malaria. But right now we are reporting nine or more per week positive cases. While this weather and climate experts had predicted low to below rainfall, Heavy rains eventually came very late in Zimbabwe, increasing chances of contracting malaria for many in and around Kariba. Mateme explained. The issue that we borders with the Murungwe district, uh, most of our clients, they come from Murungwe because they will be at border. So they find it easy to come down here to Kachikacha. So most of the positive cases, they may be from Urungwe side. Yeah, also, also due to the fact that we are in the rainy season, a rainy season creates a conducive environment for breeding of the mosquito. A breeding size, there will be most of the, the, the cases, if you can go around in the villages, you find some of them, they will not be cutting grass, they will be leaving stagnant waters, that will be very ideal for breeding of the mosquito, so they cost a lot. Around this malaria peak period, children under five years and pregnant mothers in Kariba receive mosquito nets, but the focus this year is on food security, and as it stands, no such nets have been distributed. Yeah, uh, normally we give uh, mosquito nets, uh, especially to under five uh, pregnant mothers, but in terms we do programs which cover the whole population, the whole people of Kajagaja. But due to the limited resources, sometimes we'll be screening, giving under fives and pregnant mothers because there will be at high risk of contracting malaria. Villagers who receive treatment at Gache Gache Clinic could be finding it hard in terms of transport as the area is wildlife infested and the roads are very bad, forcing officials to use both. Yeah, normally uh, we treat severe cases but uh, not responding well to second line malaria causes. We normally refer to Karipa District Hospital for further management. Yeah, because normally at times we resort to using uh, boats, speed boats. Because at times the road will be very bad, especially during rain, even uh, during the night. 
due to wild animals. This comes at a time when the continent has reached a consensus on health policies regarding TB and malaria. These health policies instruments will provide the strategic direction to secure health for all by 2030 in Africa. The reviewed documents include the overarching Africa Health Strategy 2016-2030, to the Maputo Plan of Action 2016-2030 to to end AIDS, TB, and eliminate malaria in Africa by 2030. Reporting for Channel Africa in Harare, Zimbabwe, this is Simon Muchemwa. Developing nations need assistance to build green economies or they will continue to have to rely on fossil fuels and non-renewable resources. That's the warning from Amina Mohammed, Nigeria's Environment Minister and a former Special Advisor to UN Secretary-General Ban Ki-moon. Mohammed helped author the Sustainable Development Goals and attended this month's signing of the Paris Agreement on Climate Action at UN Headquarters in New York. Jamie Kangelosi asked Mohammed if she believes countries will follow through on the agreement. I think so. I think it's going to be tough for some countries. These things have to go through internal processes like in my country. But the implications for not following through are far greater than any risk that one's going to take by signing this. And I think one of the big uh, challenges we had in the beginning, and I think the Secretary General really helped us, were providing commitments to this. And, And that gave us a reality check as to, okay, what is conditional and what is non-conditional? What can we do and what can we not do? And where do we need help? I think these things are possible, and I think people really believe that these can happen. What kind of role do you want your country to play going forward with this? Implementation, ensuring that whatever we commit to with our own nationally determined contributions is integrated into our national plans and it's reflected in our budgets. I think then we can really start to talk about having the leverage to call others to action when the actions begin at home. What kind of impact do you think um, both the Paris Agreement and the uh, Sustainable Development Goals are going to have on women in general and then women in Africa? I think that women in Africa benefit from this most if we can get them implemented. Uh, It's an integral part of what happens. Again, it's about context, and that's why the narrative is so powerful, um, because the context is about, again, women and adolescent girls being at the brunt of this. Um, And what do we do to take them back from the brink? Um, and the, the whole, I think, feeling that this cannot continue to happen and the, the zero tolerance of, of allowing it to continue. And, and I think the climate agreement provides the basis for that, uh, for us to take actions to make it happen. We, it's, it's not going to be easy. Um, and I think that we all have to struggle to make it happen. But that's the call to action. Are you um, excited or encouraged by the, the progress that's been made so far? It's a short time. I think the progress that we have made is that some countries have been doing this anyway. And I think it's coming more to the fore now what they have been doing. And so uh, for me, the kind of progress I've seen is that I'm able to challenge business and the status quo when I get back because the world now knows climate change is real. Uh, We have to take climate actions. We are sending signals to financial markets that it's okay to invest in this because if you don't, the alternative, um, you'll pay dearly and more in the longer run. Uh, So, yeah, it's good. It's good. Do you think that having to also fight climate change is challenging for nations that are still developing their economies? Yes, it is. It is. And that's why we need the partnerships. And that's why the commitments for adaptation are really important for Africa. Um, And without that, then we're not going to succeed. That's why we say conditional and non-conditional. We have to grow because we've got to take our people out of poverty. Um, And to do that green, we need help. 
Um, otherwise, we'll continue to do it brown. What are the most important steps, specifically, do you think, to fighting climate change going forward? Um, well, going forward, as I said, we want to see investments behind the actions that we want to take. I think there is still a lot of communicating and educating and understanding and informing those policy frameworks. We still have to do that and put a plan in place. Um, and then thereafter, I think we have to go after the investments and make them happen. I think it's going to be important defining the partners and the role of young people in this. Um, they've got the energy and the vision, and, and with the expertise and experience that we have, that's a good partnership. But it also means partnerships between and within governments, across borders, uh, with the business sector, um, and just calling everyone to the, um, the plus side they have to add to this and to make it happen. So it should be about solutions. It should be about how to do it and not why you can't do it. That was Amina Mohammed, Nigeria's Environment Minister and a former Special Advisor to UN Secretary General Ban Ki-moon, speaking to UN Radio's Jenny Kangelosi. If you have friends and family in the United States of America who enjoy staying in touch with news from home, tell them they can call 605-475-1711 and listen to Channel Africa from any mobile phone. The best part is there is no extra cost for the call when it originates from the U.S. So tell your friends and family in the U.S. to listen to Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. Our economics update up next with Tabiso Luhoko. Thanks, Palungile. High food prices supporting struggling Zambian families under pressure and pose a big threat to household food security. Media and Information Officer Tendai Posiana says that the government must implement sustainable measures that would ensure the cost of living reduces every time the Gwacha appreciates. Ratings agency Standard & Poor's says South African banks will find it tough to turn a profit as the economy remains feeble for the next few years and credit risks rise. Unemployment and high debt levels are a growing headache for banks as the economy shrinks. The agency expects credit losses for the top banks to reach about 1% and worsen in 2017. Zimbabwe's CBZ Holdings has reported a turnover of $37 million in the first quarter. This as the group stepped up efforts in collecting bad debts. As a result of the strong top-line performance, profit for the period amounted $5 million. Chief Executive Neva Nyamuzo told the group's annual general meeting on Thursday that the market continued to experience liquidity shortages. Russian aluminium giant Russell has delayed the Diane-Diane Bookseed project in Guinea until the end of 2017. Diane-Diane is the world's largest bookseed deposit with reserves of 564 million tons. Bookseed is used to produce aluminium, which is used in aluminium production. Enhauser-Busch Invest, or rather InBev, has offered to sell the entire Central and Eastern Europe 
assets of SAB Miller to gain EU antitrust approval for its 100 billion US dollar plus takeover of the British firm. The sale would be subject to approval for the South African breweries. SAB takeover deal by the European Commission and the successful closing of the deal, which is expected to occur in the second half of this year. SAB Central and Eastern Europe assets include operations in Hungary, Romania, the Czech Republic, Slovakia and Poland. The US dollar trades at 14.37 in South Africa, 10.56 in Botswana, 9.51 that's in Zambia. 6.8 British pound, 8.8 euro. Gold, $1,274. Platinum, $1,056 an ounce. Brand crude, $48.15 a barrel. Channel Africa's economic update. the globe every second there's always a breaking story Joy for channel africa radio in ethiopia's capital addis ababa for channel africa i'm lillian strobach reporting from the icc in the hague reporting for channel africa i am hilda kekeloa in zambia our cutting edge and hard-hitting journalism leaves no stone unturned giving you the whole picture every time george muhango Channel Africa, Blantyre. This is Lansana Fofana reporting for Channel Africa from Freetown. Reporting for Channel Africa in Harare, Zimbabwe, this is Simon Muchemwa. Reporting for Channel Africa, this is Moki Kinzeka in Yaoundi. From an African perspective, listen to Channel Africa in English, Kiswahili, French, Silozi, Portuguese, and Chinyanja, informing the world about Africa. Reporting for Channel Africa, Mwaigi Konyo in Nairobi. Join us every day and know what is happening around you. Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. Thank you, Tabi. So, sports update up next with Msibudi Makura. Good morning, sports fans, and starting off with football news. South Africa could potentially face Angola in the quarterfinals of the 2016 Kosafa Castle Cup after the draw for the competition was held on Thursday night in Windhoek, Namibia. The South African team, which is likely to be an under-23 selection under the guidance of Owen Dagama in preparation of the Olympic Games, will enter the competition at the quarterfinal stage and tackle the winners of the first round group B. South Africa played Angola an astonishing five times last year, overcoming them in the FIFA World Cup qualifiers after losing out in the African Nations Championship um, preliminaries. Aside from Angola, the other three potential opponents are Malawi, Lesotho as well as Mauritius. Now Zambia will face the winners of Group A in their quarterfinal, which will mean one of Zimbabwe, the Seychelles as well as Swaziland and one of the surprise packages from um, 
2015 Madagascar. The other quarterfinals, um, see Guest Nation, the DR Congo come up against 2015 runner-ups Mozambique, while holders Namibia take on Botswana. The first round group stage will take place during the first week of the 11th of June, with just the top team in each pool advancing to the quarterfinals. The tournament takes place in Namibia. So on football news, Rwanda Football Federation has petitioned the Confederation of African Football, CAF, to take action against Uganda over fielding a player with a double identity, ad- identity during the recent Africa Under-20 Cup of Nations first-round matches between the two countries. In the petition, Rwanda alleges that during the first leg played in Kigali, the return leg in Kampala, Uganda fielded Vipers Sports Club goalkeeper James Ayibwa, who's identity is questionable. Now the case is expected to be handled by the CAF Appeals Committee Tribunal and if Rwanda FA succeeds in the petition, Rwanda's under-20 team will proceed to the second round of the under-20, um, under um, um, the second round rather, of the 2017 Zambia AFCON under-20 qualifiers. Back home, South Africa's under-23 captain Kikin Dolly is confident that his team can get um, the better of Brazil in their Group A encounter to progress to the next round of the Rio Olympics in Brazil. Owen Gama's team has also been drawn alongside Denmark, who finished third in the under-21 European Championships last year, as well as Gulf State Iraq. The Brazilians will summon Barcelona superstar Neymar and Liverpool star Felipe Coutinho to try and win the only football trophy that has eluded them. The under-23's team recently played a friendly match against Brazil at home, or rather away, and lost that game 3-1. The Mamulodi Sundown Swinger says they know what to expect from their illustrious opponents. Yeah, you know, um, we know that they, they, they're going all out, especially because they're hosts, and it's something that they never won. We know how they play now. You know, obviously we, we recorded the game, obviously we know the players now individually. So yeah, we're just going out there to, to, to do well and not just participate in the tournament. Athletes in Zambia have embarked on an intensive training ahead of the Rio Olympics later this year. They are yet to go through their qualifying series and ensure that they book their spots in the event. Already two ladies have qualified for um, um, for the, um, the, the, the Rio Olympics in both athletics and judo, respectively. The major announcement for those who would qualify for Rio's Olympics will be announced next month. Zambian Olympics Committee President Maria Moyo explains. Maybe end of next month, sometime next month. We are still going, some of them still going through qualifiers. Yeah, we have two who have qualified, but some are still going through qualifiers. Yeah, we've got one lady in athletics, Popoma, and then we've got another lady in judo. Her name is Abigail. I forget her surname, Abigail. The two girls have qualified, one in judo, one in athletics. And finally, in tennis news, world number one Serena Williams heads to the WTA Madrid Open this week, unusually still searching for her first tournament se- win of the season. The 21-time Grand Slam champion has limited her schedule to just three tournaments so far this season, despite missing out in the final of both the Australian Open as well as the Indian Wells before crashing out in the fourth round of the Miami Open last month. The two-time winner in Madrid faces stiff competition from a wide-open field on her 
her return to action despite the absence of 2014 champion Maria Sharapova after she admitted to failing a drug test at the Australian Open. Williams conqueror at the Australian Open, Angelique Kerber, is in fine form after the backing of her Grand Slam title by returning her title at the indoor clay in Stuttgart last week. Two-time champion Petra Kivitova returns to defend her crown at the Keja Majeka and strongly believes the conditions will favor her style. Well, those are your sports news at the sound. Stay tuned to Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Zorba. Africa, Amuka na Unai. Recapping our top stories in Africa, rise and shine at the Sawa, UN Security Council lifts arms embargo on the Ivory Coast. Concerns over the worsening humanitarian situation in Syria and Papa Wemba's body arrives home in the DRC. That wraps up Africa Rise and Shine for today and for the week. For myself, Lulu Gabu, producers Pumutu Ramagadze and Jane Matebula, technical producers Biso Mashekho and the rest of the team, thank you for joining us. For comments about our show, send us an email at info.channelafrica.co.za or tweet us at YShineAfrica or send an SMS on 277 Now taking us to the top of the hour for the news on the frequency 9625 kHz on the 31-meter band to Southern Africa is Kanda Bongoman with the song title Kizash.